as we continue our series on transformation, learning to live in the kingdom of God. Transformation is hard. Uh, it's probably worth thinking about why that is, and at some point maybe we'll just do a message on why transformation is hard, because there's, there's a number of elements in that, but we've been thinking about one of the reasons it's hard, and that is that we all live with this uh, idea of shame and honor pretty deeply embedded in our minds, or failure and success, it's, it's kind of parallel. Uh, the notion of honor says that I'm a, I'm a worthy, good, acceptable kind of person, and shame says I'm not worthy, I'm inadequate, uh, I'm even unlovable, perhaps. And we saw that this, uh, this really played out when John the Baptist started the announcement of the coming kingdom and called people to repentance that there were Jewish leaders who came to his baptism who said, uh, in effect, we're here to check this out. We're not here to engage in repentance. That's not something that we're interested in or that we really see that we need. So they see themselves pretty high up on this uh, shame-honor spectrum and... uh, The idea of repentance, of course, suggests that somehow they may themselves have taken the wrong course even though they enjoyed much esteem from other people and were large in their own eyes. Uh, Repentance suggests that they need to come down. That's very difficult. They reject that. Repentance is something I think is okay for ordinary people. It's particularly appropriate for sinners, for the marginalized, for the outcasts, For the people that everybody knows uh, ought to be filled with shame in terms of the life that they've lived. So we thought about that and we thought about the challenge that each of us has personally when we engage with this idea of transformation which is related to the idea of repentance because that admission of what's really going on in our lives that is difficult. That genders, engenders these feelings of uh, shame and unworthiness. And so the reality is that, that most Christians are not very engaged with this idea of transformation. Because, you know, I mean, here's my problem. I've, I've been a Christian for 50 years. You're telling me I need, to, I need to change? That I'm not where I should be? Well, I mean, maybe, maybe you're not where you should be, but me, right? And so it's difficult for God to really deal with the things in our lives and for us to increase in Christ-likeness because we're so defensive of where we are. That makes it hard. So... We've got a couple theses here we've been working on, and the one that grows out of this is the idea that the more energy we put into maintaining or improving our position on the shame-honor continuum, the less likely it it is that we will practice repentance and the less likely that we will experience 
transformation. So that's one of the reasons transformation is hard. It's not the only reason. We'll pick up some further ones along the way. Now, as I was thinking about this again this week, it seems to me there's a corollary here. And the corollary is something like this, that shame is the greatest obstacle to transformation. Now, I'm not sure that's actually true. I'm proposing that for you to think about. Uh, maybe there's some other things that are greater obstacles, but I have a sense this may be the most important one. And it's interesting to think about the biblical story, isn't it? Uh, with Genesis 3 being the place where sin comes into the human race as Adam and Eve eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does it say right before that? It says they were both naked and they were unashamed. And then they sin. And God comes looking for them, not the reverse, right? They don't go looking for God to say, oh, uh, we really blew it. They don't do that. God comes looking for them, and what do they do? They hide. Why? Well, they say to God, we knew that we were naked. They felt shame. And it blocks them from coming to the very one who can deal with their sins. So that may, be, that may be a significant clue to us that this really is the most important obstacle to transformation. Certainly, it's, it's a major one if it's not the most significant. And then we looked at a second thesis last week. We suggested that the most important contribution I can make to the process of transformation is to allow myself to be loved by God. And uh, we, we began to see that in this wonderful story that Jesus told that we call the prodigal son, which may not be the best title because it could suggest to us that the story is only about one son, but it's actually about two sons, and... Uh, We'll be seeing that over these couple of weeks here that we continue to look at the parable. Today, though, we are going to focus on the, the first son, the younger son, who we often call the prodigal. So we'll call this the prodigal's surprise. Follow along as I read. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Well, next week we're going to look at the second son, but this will keep us busy for uh, today. So let's think about this young man who goes off to a distant country. The, uh, the distant country, of course, is uh, symbolic here. I mean, it's, it's literal in the story, but it's symbolizing something bigger, as the parables of Jesus always do. To go to the distant country is to be away from home. Now, home is what literary scholars would call one of the archetypal images of literature. Home is a symbol that carries with it all sorts of associations that that are just universally understood. Home is uh, where you belong. Home is where you are comfortable. Home is where you are loved. It's where you're protected. It's where you're provided for. Now, of course, you can say, uh, yeah, you know, there's a lot of homes that aren't like that. Well, true, but understand, this is an archetype. This, This is an image that we all understand, even though we realize that there are many homes that fall short of the image. The fact is, it's still a powerful image that that grips all of us. It speaks to everybody. So around the, the holidays, what do people sing about? They sing about being home for the holidays, right? Uh, now, the reality is that home for the holidays almost never turns out to be as good as you want it to. That's why there's lots of depression around the holidays, But the fact is, it's a powerful image. And in the story that Jesus is telling about the prodigal, it obviously has this larger background of thinking about people who are no longer connected to God. They have no spiritual home. Remember, this is one of three stories that are right in a row here in Luke. 
And in each of the stories, it's about somebody who's lost or something that's lost, a sheep or a coin or here a son who is lost. And he's lost because he's away from home and he's away from all those things that home points to. Here's the little guy in the picture. He's uh, headed off somewhere. He's got his teddy bear in the bag. He doesn't have much else. And, of course, the reality is that when kids run away from home, they are at risk in all kinds of ways. And what Jesus is saying is that the human race is at risk. Because obviously behind what he's saying here is the whole biblical narrative. And one way to look at the opening chapters of the Bible where Adam and Eve sinned, they've been placed in the Garden of Eden. It's the park that is right next to where God dwells. It's right next to God's house. And they're placed there to tend, to extend, and to defend the garden. But then they sin and they get exiled. They're away from home. And this is a way that Jesus so powerfully talks about the plight of the the entire human race. We are people away from home. In the deepest sense that we're away from God and all that God wishes to provide for us. So the son goes off to a distant country. He leaves home with all that that uh, means to him. And he ends up in this difficult place where his money runs out and a famine hits and he's starving to death and he has no options. He's feeding pigs and wishing that he could eat with them. We might say that away from home and through his experiences, he is now feeling confused and betrayed. Confused because he thought he knew what life was about. Life was about getting away from the father's house, striking out on his own, having money to spend enjoying the pleasures that money can buy, having friends to share in that with him. And now it's all gone. And there's betrayal here, isn't there? There's betrayal in this sense that that almost everything that the son was following was an idol. Remember, idols are what you put your trust in. So he trusts in his wealth that his father gave him. He trusts in his ability to manage money. Well, that was pretty stupid. He trusts in his fair-weather friends who are going to help him if he needs help. 
He trusts that things are going to continue on as they were. He believes a lot of foolish things. And in the end, the idols that he trusts in betray him, which is what idols always do. Because idols make promises to you and me that they never can keep. They pretend to be God. They make God-like promises, but only God can keep the promises. So away from home, he's now confused, betrayed, and he's heartsick. Or if you want to say it, he's homesick. He has this sense of loss or emptiness. Now, see, if you think about that, you can get in touch with that, maybe on just a normal human level. I was always a fairly independent kid. My, my parents gave me a lot of opportunity to do things, and I went away to camps and stuff like that. And then I went away to college. And uh, college was a great experience. But even though it was a great experience, and, and even though I was used to being away from home, there was still that period after, you know, a month, two months, uh, the cooks at uh, Penn State were actually not bad. I mean, the food was pretty decent, but, I mean, my, my mother was Pennsylvania Dutch, and she knew how to cook. And, and so there were those little things. I mean, a couple times a day, you know you're not getting mom's cooking. When you start thinking about it, there's a lot of other things you're not getting either. And so you start to feel that kind of emptiness. It was not debilitating for me. For some people, it is debilitating. But it was still there, that sense of loss or emptiness, a certain sadness. Or, in its more extreme form, it's even hopelessness. Now, Jesus' picture, remember, is to talk to us primarily about our relationship to God. There is this whole spiritual level. And so as we think about that again, as we think about the human race being exiled from home, then we have to think about the reality of this emptiness that we all carry spiritually, the emptiness of being away from the Father's care, of being away from where we ought to be. And that, that is always with us. Now, you can anesthetize it. Right? That's, what, that's what idols can do for you. They can't really deliver, but they can anesthetize you temporarily so that you don't feel the pain. I mean, that's what anesthesia does, right? Protects you from pain. And so the anesthesia of all kinds of things in the world can give a sort of temporary relief, a covering for the deep pain that we feel being away from home our true home. And, and people pursue this. You know, the anesthesia can be 
just a frenetic works, work style that keeps you running so fast you don't have time to think. It can be, uh, it can be drugs that just bomb you out of your mind. It can be pleasure, sex. I mean, there, there, there's a reason why historically many pagan religions tie worship and sex together. Right? Because there's a similar kind of uh, sense of ecstasy that easily can confuse those two. So there's many ways that that the world can provide anesthesia to lessen the pain of homesickness. But in those places where we get quiet and settled, that's when it rises to the surface. It's not, see, the prodigal, we don't know how long he was away. It was long enough to spend all his money. But he never comes to the point where he's ready to go home until he's sitting by himself. His friends are gone. His pleasurable experiences are gone. His money is gone. It's only when he's by himself sitting with the pigs that the pain surfaces to a degree where he is ready to deal with it. Have you been in that place? Unfortunately, a lot of times repentance doesn't come to us until we're in pretty extreme situations. All right, so he's down totally. He's ready to be open to rethink his situation and to begin the journey home. It starts with this interesting statement in verse 17, when he came to his senses. Literally, the old King James Version, I think, uh, gets it exactly right. It's when he came to himself. I've, I've thought about that. What's, what's involved with this idea of coming to yourself? Certainly, thinking correctly, having a, a fresh perspective on who you are, that's part of this idea. Certainly involves seeing things as they are rather than you just the way you just want to see them. A lot of us have this uh, magic mirror like this guy has, right? <laughs> uh, at Boy, that saves you a lot of work, doesn't it? I've got, uh, Jeff, you've probably seen these guys over at Planet Fitness that are, look like they're chiseled out of rock. Uh, they've, they've spent a lot of time in the gym. And uh, they've built their muscles large and strong. Transformation takes work. It's hard. And those guys show it. They're, I mean, they're in there almost every day. I see them. And <clears throat> but 
But I, I, like, I like the mirror approach, don't you? Yeah, yeah, the magic mirror that tells you that you're somebody other than you are. Well, coming to our senses is beginning to see things as they really are. This young man went off and thought he had the skills to manage his money, that he'd do fine away from home, that life could be focused on pleasure. He was just a stupid kid. He didn't know how to manage money. He didn't know how to find good friends. He didn't realize that life is more than just having a good time. He had so many wrong ideas. And now, as he sits with the pigs, he begins to see things as they really are. That's, that's critical for repentance. Now, you don't see everything. This is where God's grace is so wonderful that when we commit ourselves to the process of transformation, God doesn't show up with a laundry list of a thousand items and say, well, here it is, friends, uh, or friend, <laughs> uh, get to work. Because we'd be overwhelmed. But rather, what God does, and here I think it's the Spirit of God, He sovereignly gives us insight into certain particular elements of our personality where he wants to see change. And he enables change in those areas. And he doesn't give us a a long list. But as we embark on the road of change and we deal with certain areas... Then at different times in a variety of ways, the Spirit of God will surface other items and say, okay, now we've, you know, we've worked on this area, there's some real progress here, but now here's another area. And often that comes as a shock to us because we haven't seen that. And the reason we haven't seen it is at times because God has just closed that off, not wanting to overwhelm us. Because there's no one who wants to see transformation in our lives more than the Father himself. And he knows the way to do it, to do it gradually and helpfully. So the prodigal begins to see things as they are. He engages in this process. We've talked about this so many times under different images. Remember, we spent some time talking about the school of the Messiah. And we said, believers are people who get a lifetime enrollment in the school of the Messiah. As long as you are in this life, you have not graduated. Sorry to tell you that. Some Christians think that they've graduated as soon as they've come to Christ, as soon as they've said, I believe. Not so, friends. Sorry to give you that tough news. You're enrolled. You're expected to be in class. There's a process that needs to take place from kindergarten to 12th grade to college. 
just never stops. You just, you just keep learning because God continues to reveal himself to you and to reveal yourself to you. So it's a process. Uh, and yes, he, here's, the, here's the tough part, friends. It's painful. We've said it's, it's hard, you know, but, but let's say it a little bit more this way. It's painful. It's threatening. What, what is God going to ask of me? Can I even do this? Is this the person that I am? After all this time, do I do I still struggle with this or, you know, that's that's part of this this pathway we're called to walk. So he came to his senses, and then he turns back. Classic picture here of repentance, right? Is understanding that you've been heading the wrong direction and you reverse course. He's walked away from the father's house. He's gone to the distant country. Now he's turning back. And he says, when he came to his senses, I will set out and go back to my father. And what he's doing, although he doesn't realize it yet, this is very interesting in this story, what he's doing in reversing course and journeying back is he is reclaiming his sonship. But he doesn't know that. That's important for me to, you and me to know. We are going back to that place in the Father's house where we were meant to dwell. Remember, it's Jesus who says, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places and there's a place for you he says to his disciples and it is a place of sonship remember this picture we've looked at a number of times that picture of divine human partnership that's God's dream for the world that's God's dream for his children to partner with him. And repentance and transformation is what takes us back to that place where we are fitted to take our place in the kingdom of God. Remember, transformation and kingdom go together. Transformation is being fitted for my place in God's dream for the world, that I might partner with him. So... The son turns home. And the next thing we are presented with is this meeting that he has with his father. He's, uh, as he's journeyed, he's, <clears throat> he's got the speech all in his mind, right? Father, <clears throat> I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he's been working that up. He's already, and he travels back, 
And as he gets near, we're told that the father sees him a long way off. And what he experiences then is an unexpected welcome. He is surprised by love. What he is expecting is that he will need to bow and grovel and beg. But he doesn't. He expects his father to be distant from him. Instead, the father is watching for his return. And doing something that uh, is considered beneath the dignity of an ancient father like this, he runs to meet his son. So there's an unexpected welcome, and then there is also a gracious welcome. There's a gracious welcome in that the father will accept no deals because part of what the son has been doing on his journey home is he's been been working out the deal. Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, what's that about? Well, it's certainly a feeling on his part that he doesn't deserve a place in the household anymore, right? He's he's not claiming sonship. What he's hoping for is a servant position, particularly a hired servant. So behind this, there may be, this is where these, these stories in the Bible are so compressed that you're not sure on some things. But it may be that what the son is saying to himself, I know I've blown it. I know I've wasted the resources of this family because he got a third of the estate, right? Older son gets two parts. The younger son get one part. So a third of the estate is gone. So it may be what he's saying is, I've not only squandered my sonship, but I've squandered the inheritance, and I've hurt the whole family. So, Father, if you make me like a hired man, I'll get a little bit of pay out of this, and I can make some effort to repay what I've taken away, what I've lost. Now, what you see when he actually comes back, it's, it's, uh, it's just beautiful, isn't it? He's got the speech already. He's been working on it for the whole trip back. He gets there and launches right into it. Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But he never gets to the last part. Because the father interrupts him and says, bring out the robe, bring out the ring, the sandals for his feet, slay the fattened calf, let's celebrate because this, my son, was lost and now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive. The father interrupts his plans to make amends for his sin, to pay for his sins. The father interrupts that. It is not acceptable 
This is a beautiful picture of grace in the Bible. Grace is the Apostle Paul's word particularly so, not exclusively, but he uses it a hundred times. Grace is, for Paul and for the Bible, the way you talk about the good things that God gives at no cost. The good things that God gives that cannot be deserved, they cannot be earned, they cannot be bought in any way. This picture, this story is such an extraordinary vision of how grace works. The grace of God says to us sinners, return, turn back, come home. To do that, of course, we have to acknowledge that we've been going the wrong direction. We have to acknowledge sins. So John the Baptist is said to preach a baptism for the remission of sins. And people went down confessing their sins and they were baptized. So confession goes along with it, but confession is not paying. It's not earning. See, that can't be done in God's economy. No deals. No deals with God. Grace or nothing. Do we get that? It's grace or nothing. Throughout our lives, not just at the beginning, so many Christians sort of get the idea, okay, i got to start the Christian life by grace. I, I just come as a sinner. I receive the love and goodness and forgiveness of God. And then they want to spend the rest of the journey home trying to pay God back somehow, making deals with God. And we do it in a hundred different ways. But Jesus says, no deals. Just come. And the result is a joyous welcome. Soon as, as soon as the prodigal returns and he makes that confession that he's no longer worthy to be called a son, immediately the celebration begins. Isn't that beautiful? Immediately the word of the Father is interrupting him for his, his plans and his deal. Immediately the word is slay the fatted calf. Clothe my son with the best garments we have. Give him the ring of sonship. Put sandals on his feet to show that he's no longer a beggar or a slave. Do all of that. Because he's home. Because he's alive from the dead. And the celebration begins. So here, you see, there is a... uh, a principle, I think, that runs through the Bible. That difficulty, and repentance is one form of difficulty, right? The hardness leads to joy. 
Think of these beautiful verses in Psalm 126. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Hardness followed by joy. Struggle followed by joy. Celebration. When you come home, when you turn back, and it is a journey, see? And, and throughout the journey, we get, uh, we get turned aside from time to time. It's like you're on your journey back to the Father's house, and all of a sudden, you get a little bit confused, and you pull into a, a cul-de-sac. And a cul-de-sac doesn't take you anywhere. But you know they always have that little circle at the end to make it easy to turn around? But, but there's a lot of us Christians who start the road home and we get off into the cul-de-sac and instead of coming out, we just keep driving in that circle at the end. There's some folks in this church that have been driving around the circle for years and years and years. And that's not only frustrating, friends, it's joyless. It's joyless. Because the joy comes from being on the road back to the Father's house and hearing him even before we get there to give those welcoming and encouraging words. Speaking to us the words of sonship and belonging and care and privilege. But we get off in the cul-de-sac and we get spun around. And we miss what it is that the Father has for us. Well, next week we're going to look at this other interesting character in the story. The second son. Because he's got a lot of stuff going on too. And we want to explore that a little bit because if there's an element in which all of us are the prodigal, there's also an element in which all of us are the older brother. So we have to think about that next week. Let's pray together. Lord, you are good. Your mercy is everlasting. Your love reaches to the skies. And we're the people who forget that, who wander off, who think that there are other gods who can outperform you. And some of us are still uh, chasing those gods. And some of us feel betrayed, but we haven't turned back. Or, or we've gotten sidetracked. Father, will you focus our attention and give us the joy of those who know and actively commit 
to journeying back to the Father's house. And in that process, God, will you bring transformation into our lives? This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Dismissed. <laughs>